Hey, welcome to the Northside Church Podcast. Thank you so much for listening to this message today. Our prayer is that this message inspires you, encourages you, uplifts you, maybe even convicts you a little bit with the help of the Holy Spirit. We're grateful that you're joining us here on our podcast. We want to ask that you would real quickly just subscribe to this channel so that you could be notified when new messages go up every week and be looking out for new content in the new coming year of 2023 here on our Northside Church podcast. Enjoy the message. All right, I'm excited about tonight. Um, We're going to take a little journey through the Bible tonight, and I'm talking seriously from beginning to the end. And it's gonna don't get like freaked out. You're not. I don't want you to think like, oh, we're gonna be here forever. No, we're gonna move quickly, but we're gonna have this journey through the scriptures tonight together. And I'm gonna have everything kind of on the screen to help us, you know, with references and stuff. But um, tonight we're talking about a people for his own possession. A people for his own possession. The main text tonight that we're gonna read at the very end is First Peter two nine. Don't turn there because you're going to turn somewhere else here in a second. But if you just write it down, 1 Peter 2.9 is the main text. is where we get our title from, a people for his own possession. Um, people crave and long just to be a part of a community where they belong. People have a desire, a natural desire, something that we're born with, to be a part of a community or a place or a home or some sort of um, um, environment where they will belong. Not necessarily fit in. Fit in is a totally different thing, but where they belong, where they are brought in, where they are embraced. They're messing up. People long to have that. People want that. They're craving that. A place that has a place for them. Okay? That should be the church all the time. But people want this. The word that I tie to this that tonight is you're going to hear a lot of is relationality. Okay, you've heard of personality and, you know, all these alities. But tonight we're going to hear a lot about relationality and look at that in the context of Scripture and the relation between God and his people, a people for his own possession. Okay, relationality is woven into our DNA, y'all. That's why people long to be a part of something in somewhere where they belong where they're brought in and embraced, every part of who they are, everything that, that, they, that makes them who they are, they're embraced, brought in, and belong. God himself is a relational God. My prayer tonight is that we gain cosmic clarity of how relational God is, that we see through Scripture just how relational God is and that we see his providential plan from beginning to end, his providential plan to bring us back to him, bring us back into relationship with him, togetherness with him, a people for his own possession. So here's, the, here's something that I want us to get into our heads and onto our notepads from the jump, okay? This is for us. Your destiny, okay? That word gets thrown a lot in today's society, and you're getting told what your destiny is and you know, you're being told to carve your own ways and do your own thing and be your own. Okay, whatever. What does the Bible say? The Bible says that your destiny, which is God's design and purpose for your life, your destiny is found and it's formed in a family of faith. Togetherness. Relationality. Your destiny is found and formed in a family of faith. I want us to pull on this thread tonight that is woven through the entire scope of Scripture. It starts in Genesis, which we're going to launch from. There's this thread, this thread. And tonight I want us to pull on that thread and I want it to take us all the way through Scripture and show us just how relational God is within himself and with his people. And what we're going to find out, little spoiler alert, God is all about his people in his possession. Okay? So let's pray. Then we'll get started. Father, would you bless our time together tonight? Would you bless this study? Would you bless the reading of your word? We're so grateful to be in your house tonight with each other. This is your family, God. 
This is your house, and we are here together with you. So we give you our attention. We give you our affection. We surrender this time to you and ask that your will would be done. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's start. First place we're going to start from. Genesis 1, first chapter of the first book in the Bible. Genesis 1, verse 26. Here's what it says. You may have heard this scripture before. And I want you, I want you to notice the, the relational language within this text. Okay, little words, but little words with big meaning. Here's what the, here's what the Bible says in Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us, two-letter word, us, relational word, Let us make man in our, three-letter word, image, after our likeness. Okay? There's two theological sides of the coin that is usually presented here for this us and this our in the text. Okay? So a lot of times, you know, when you're listening to a guy preach or teach with the Bible, you're going to hear this verse brought up sometimes, and you're going to hear one of two beliefs around this text. And I'm going to give them to you right now, okay? You're going to become a theologian tonight. The first side of the coin that people argue for this text is that the us and the our in this text right here is the Godhead. It's God the Father, it's God the Son, and it's God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. It's the Trinity talking within itself, saying, let us, Father, Son, and Spirit, Make man, mankind, in our image. Okay? Now I'm just going to tell you, that's what we believe here at Northside because we're Trinitarian. Okay? And when he said, let us make man in our image, God is the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit. We as human beings are made up of three main elements, body, mind, spirit. Okay? So when God said, let us make man in our image, we believe that that is the God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Spirit, talking and relating with one another, creating mankind. Now, the other side of the coin that you may hear later on in your life argued that has no biblical proof whatsoever, it's just come up across time, is you may hear guys say that there is some divine counsel that, is, that God's speaking with here, so imagine, if you will, like some big th- heavenly throne room with like God on the throne and then other gods on their thrones or this council that's sitting on little, you know, and there's no text and there's no biblical text for that whatsoever. But you may hear that one day. You need to be prepared for that. We do not believe in that, okay? So look at how relational this is. The creation of man, it's so relational already. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are doing it together. Now, this is very important. Why? Because what it tells us is that God didn't kick off in some power play soloing, okay? But woven into creation itself is relationality. A relational God working within himself, two other beings within himself, together, creating mankind. So we now exist in the overflow of the Trinity's relationship and the Trinity's creative work. So watch this. Relationship, relationality, is woven into our DNA now. So when you understand that you were made by a relational God, you will approach God in a relational way. There's a lot of different teachings and religions and belief systems that present God as a non-relational God. And so the people who are part of these religions and teachings, who sit under these teachings, their view of God is distorted and it's, it's, it's harmful and it's dangerous because God to them is way too far off, unapproachable, unreachable, distant. But that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is relational. He's a God of togetherness and us and our. Relationality is woven into our DNA. We were formed and created with relationality. Okay? So that's the first text. Genesis 1.26. That's the launching point. Here's the next text. I told you we're going to go fast. Not to worry. Just jump over one chapter. 
Genesis 2.18. Okay? Look what the Bible says in Genesis 2.18. Then the Lord said, so he's looking at Adam. Adam's been here for a while now. God gave Adam a job in the garden. He said, you work the garden, you tend the garden, you have the, the job of naming all the animals, and so Adam's doing all this, right? And God one day looks at Adam when he's by himself, and look what God says in verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, write this down because this is very interesting. This is the first negative comment that God makes towards anything in the Bible, and it's against loneliness. The first negative comment that God makes in the entire Bible is in Genesis 2, and it's towards loneliness. Everything that God had done up until this point, God says it's good, it's good, it's good, it's perfect, it's good, it's good. He looks at man, man is alone, and the relational God that we serve says, whoa, that's not good. Loneliness is not good. So what does God do? He's like, I gotta give him someone. I gotta make a people here. So God sees a flaw before sin had ever even entered into man. Being alone is not good. Isolation is not good. It's not good. I want us to notice something about the creation of Eve. So if you would, just look down to verse 21 in chapter 2 of Genesis. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while Adam slept... God took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. How did God create Adam? Out of the what? Out of the ground, out of the dirt. I want us to notice something about the creation of Eve. God created the woman in a way that kept the divine nature of togetherness. How did God make mankind? He said, let us make man in our image. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Relational God, relationality, creates mankind from within himself, in the image of himself. He looks at man, he says, it's not good that man's alone. So instead of God going off away from Adam, and doing another dirt ball, what does God do? He takes woman from man himself, allowing that bond to remain unbroken, togetherness forever. Now man and woman share togetherness, relationality forever. God did not break just because he saw Adam lonely. He said, I'm not going to break the togetherness, the relationality. I'm going to make woman from man. So watch this. God made Man from himself, God makes woman from man. Togetherness. There is a bond here, an unbreakable relation. He formed man from, formed woman from man. Togetherness from the beginning, an unbreakable bond of relation. Now, jump over to Genesis 12. You're like, whoa, dude, that's, that's a big leap. Skipped a couple chapters. I did. But don't worry. We're going to summarize what took place between chapters 2 and 12 here in just a second. So Genesis 12, verses 1 and 3. Here's what it says. Now the Lord said to Abram. Now this is Abraham before he was Abraham. Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Watch God's promise here. And I will make of you, from you, Sim very similar language to what God said when he made woman, right? I will make woman from man. He tells Abraham, I will make from you a great nation, a people, a people. And I will bless you and I will make your name great. 
so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed togetherness. Now, you, you're like, dude, you jumped from chapter 2 to chapter 12. Okay, there's a lot of history that took place between chapter 2 and chapter 12. Okay, what do we know? Just to summarize it up. The relational God makes Adam. He sees that it's not good for man to be alone, so Eve comes along, and we know the story. Sin enters into mankind, and then Adam and Eve began to do what humans do and you know, populate, the, populate the earth, make humans. Earth is now full of rebellious people. Rebellion against God is basically what's happening all across the earth. God gets fed up. So what does he do? He floods the earth. He kills everyone except who? Noah and his family. Such a great bedtime story for children, right? It's like you put them down to sleep and it's like, okay, God killed everyone. Good night. Love you. God floods the earth, kills everyone, but he spares humanity through Noah. Okay? Noah and his family do what they do begin to populate the earth again. The earth again, you would think they learned their lesson, but no, again after the flood, the earth is full of rebellion against God. And this time, humanity thinks they're smart. And they say, let's build a tower this time. Let's go to God and relate to God on our terms and on our standards. And we're gonna build this tower and this tower is gonna be so huge that it's gonna reach heaven and we'll be able to go up and down into heaven and, and relate to God however we want to. So again, we know the story. God gets upset. And what does he do? He causes confusion. He, in that one moment, no one can understand each other because now everyone's speaking a different language. There's mass confusion. I can't understand what they're saying anymore. I can't understand what they're... No one can understand each other. All the languages are all given in that one moment, and it's confusion. And then what does God do? He disperses the people. He scatters the people across the entire world. To the, oh, sorry. Across the entire world, to the four corners of the earth. God scatters the people. He gives them different languages, and then their judgment is, you go away from one another. Togetherness no more. You go away. You're scattered. You're separated. He confuses the people. Then you come to chapter 12. And what does God say? God has just dispersed the people. He's just confused the people. He just wiped out an entire you know, population before that. And then you get to chapter 12, and what does God say to Abraham? He gives Abraham a promise, and he says what? Abraham... From you, I'm going to make a people. I'm going to bring everyone together again. I'm going to bring it all back to me. It's all going to come back together again. And the Abrahamic covenant was given right there in Genesis chapter 12. So what God destroyed and then dispersed, he is now making a covenant to regather his people regather and come together again. Then, jump to Exodus 19, okay? Told you we're going to be moving, okay? Exodus 19. What's happened between then and now? Well, a lot's happened, but right before this moment, Moses has delivered the people by God's hand out of Egyptian slavery. God brought them into the wilderness. He split the Red Sea. We know the story. God brings Moses to the top of Mount Sinai, okay? And then in verses 5 and 6, look what God says to Moses. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, watch this, you shall be my treasured possession among all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. In this moment, right here, God makes a covenant with the nation of Israel. You keep my covenant, you obey my words, and you, Israel, will be a holy nation, a priesthood 
for me, a people for me, my people. So God says, you say yes to the covenant, you say yes to the commandments, you will be my people. Listen very intently and listen very carefully. This may shake your theology, that's okay. God's plan is not you as a person. It's us as a people. You'll get that here later on as we continue studying. But God's plan is not you as a person. It's always been us as a people. Now, this text right here, remember, God scattered, he dispersed, he confused in judgment. He gave a promise that he's going to bring them together. He said, I'm going to bring it all back together. I'm going to make a people. And then you get to Moses and he says, I'm going to make a people, a nation, a priesthood, a people for my own possession. And this verse, this text right here, this slingshots all the way to the book of Acts. It slingshots all the way to the book of Acts and it ties directly into the Great Commission. What's the Great Commission? When Jesus, before he left the earth, he said, you go into all the world and you preach the gospel and you baptize and you make disciples in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Great Commission. Go into all the world, preach the gospel. Now, what he's saying is, go. Begin the regathering you got to go into all the world. Why? Because God scattered the people across the entire world. you got to go to the four corners of the earth because God scattered his people across the four corners of the earth. So Jesus said, go. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Why? Because God says, you got to bring them back. We've got to get the togetherness back. We've got to get the us back. We've got we've to bring the relationality back together. People have got to come back into relation with God. You see, listen, church. I know if you grew up in an evangelical church and you grew up in a you know, uh, traditional evangelical you know, area or whatever, the Great Commission, we have to understand something. The Great Commission is not a call for us to just wander off into the world and start shooting off gospel bullets in random places and then just hope and pray that one of those bullets hits someone and they just get saved by the grace of God. That's not how the gospel works. That's not what God intended, and that's not what Jesus meant when he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Listen, God's gospel, God's word is very intentional, and it is divinely accurate. In other words, the gospel works. And the gospel, when it is preached, it is the power to captivate the hearts of men and women. And it has the power to bring them to a knowledge that they are lost and in need of a Savior. And what does it do? It brings them back together with God and with his family. But we've kind of grown up believing and sort of grown up hearing teaching where the Great Commission is just, hey, you go out into the world and you just start slinging the gospel around like a machine gun and let's just hope that a bullet hits someone and they just get saved. That's not how the gospel works. God's gospel is intentional. It's divinely accurate, okay? What it is, what the Great Commission is, is it is God's collection. He's collecting who are his. God is collecting who are his and he's bringing us back to him, the relational God. Listen, church, I'll say it again. Christianity is not about God and you. It is about God and his people. That's what Christianity is all about. Christianity is not about God and me and me and God. It's about God and his people. Now, you do have a personal relationship with Christ, but that personal relationship with Christ is within the context of a people, God's people, God's kingdom. Listen, let me just say this. The Bible knows nothing of give me Jesus and I don't need anyone else. That's something we hear a lot today. It's something that we've heard a lot post-COVID. Well, I just have Jesus with me and I don't, need church, and I don't need to be here, and I don't need to be a part of this, and I don't need anyone else as long as I have Jesus. The Bible, that's, that concept is foreign to the Bible. You'll never find that anywhere in the Bible. But you know what you will read in Scripture from the beginning to the very end? You give me Jesus, and you bring me into his kingdom with his people, with his children, 
That's what you'll read in the Bible. Togetherness, relationality, a God who is together in and of himself, together with his people. God, Christianity is not about God and you. It's about God and his people, bringing them together again. Then we jump from Exodus all the way to the New Testament. You're like, wow, this is moving very quickly. I'm glad. Matthew 12, Jesus is on the scene now. Matthew 12, verses 46 through 50. This is a funny story. When you read it, it's like, these are the stories of Jesus that you don't hear in Sunday school and you don't hear on Sundays and you don't hear in the devotionals because this is that Jesus, this is that side of Jesus that is kind of hairy and difficult to sort of study and, and look at, you know, break down. But look, what, look at verse 46 in Matthew 12. While Jesus was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother, his earthly mother, which is Mary, and his brothers, his Brothers are his actual earthly blood brothers, which would be his half-brothers, which are Mary and Joseph's kids. Okay? So Jesus' earthly mother, Mary, and his brothers stood outside while Jesus is inside preaching to the people. And they say, they say to a dude who's standing outside, hey, we want to speak to Jesus. Can you go inside and get Jesus for us? Verse 48. But Jesus replied to the man who told them, who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, so Jesus does this, he goes, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Does that seem a little harsh to you? I don't know how many of you grew up in a household where if you were to speak to your mother like that, it would not be good for you, Okay? A lot of you know who my mom is. If I were to speak to my mom like this, Aaron, I need to talk to you. Who are you, my mother? Yeah, would not go down well in our house. Okay? Seems a little strange. But it's actually something very beautiful is happening here. Something gorgeous is happening here. To understand this moment right here, you have to understand something called strong group culture and weak group culture. Has anyone ever heard of these things before? Great. You have to understand strong group culture and weak group culture to understand what's happening in this verse. Okay. Strong group culture is very common in Asia, India, and the Middle Eastern countries, which is where you know, you read about in the Bible. What strong group culture is, is a society or a community or a group of people, they value the well-being of the community, they value the well-being of the collective people, listen to this, over the individual's opinions and desires. So they have a bigger picture of the community here. And they say, we need to do and be what's best for us as a people, for what's best for us as a community, for what's best for us as a nation, instead of yielding and falling before everyone's individual needs and opinions and desires. Now what weak culture is, is the opposite. And I'll just say this. Western society, America, is a weak culture society or a weak group culture. Because what weak group culture is, is it's someone who says, well, your group and your community, they better conform to what I want and what I desire, or else you're, you're, you're oppressive, and you're hateful, and you're mean, and you just don't want anyone, and you don't love anyone. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. Sounds like 2023 20, to me. So you have to understand strong group culture and weak group culture to understand what's happening in this text. So what Jesus just did, listen to this, watch this, watch this. What Jesus just did, his earthly mother, the woman who gave birth to him, and his blood, half-blood brothers are outside. And they want, 
They want to talk to Jesus while he's teaching his disciples and other people. But what Jesus does is he says, listen, listen, you may want that. You may, that may be what your heart's desire is right now. But Jesus looks at his followers and he looks at the men and the women who are following him and and giving up their lives devoted to Christ. And he elevates his followers to family. They're not just followers. They're not just friends. They're family. God's children. The relational God. Now, this may be a shock to your theology, and I totally understand why. Like, I get it. It's like, you, don't, you mean to tell me that Jesus wouldn't give his mother and his brothers the time of day just to go outside? If I call on the name, the name of Jesus, he comes and he answers, and he gives me what I... This is a shock to my theology. I get it. Why is it a shock? Well, because our modern Western version of Christianity that we've created and I'm just going to say this with a loving heart, the God that we've created is this desperate boyfriend God who sits in heaven and who can't live without me. And we write these songs where he's just constantly chasing me down. He is shaping and conforming and becoming whatever my version of what he should be is. So we've turned God into this weak, Plato-y deity who I can just have my way and I can call on, him, call on him whenever I want and I can get from him whatever I want. And he's so wrapped up in his love with me and then we've turned worship music almost into this really weird romanticized relationship with Christ instead of a holy relationship with Christ where it's like, oh, me and God are just dancing and life is beautiful and you know we're just caught up in with one another. Christianity is not about God and you. Christianity is about God and his people. We're dealing with the holy God. God does not work that way. It's his way. It's his kingdom. It's his people. And it's his terms. Period. That's the Bible. God is holy, y'all. God is holy. You don't just demand to have your way with God and expect him to jump. He says those who follow me and that do the will of my father, this is family. These are my mothers. These are my brothers. These are my sisters. So then we jump to Acts. Acts chapter 2. I bet you've never flipped to the Bible so much in your life in one sermon. And then we get to Acts chapter 2. So now Jesus is gone. The church has now been created. The Spirit has fallen on the people. The day of Pentecost has come. Okay? Now the church is an actual thing. The church is gathering. The people are together. Remember, we're talking about relationality here. We're talking about togetherness. And then you get to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. This is a beautiful, beautiful passage. Look at the church. Look at the the image of the fellowship of the believers. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and, underline this, the fellowship, togetherness, to the breaking of bread, underline that, and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles'. And all who believed were, underline this word, together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and their belongings. And they were distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. Look at this. And day by day, underline this, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. Watch this. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. God just putting people in his possession. God bringing people back. God putting people in. God bringing people back. 
putting them in togetherness, putting them to the relationality. So what do we see happening here? What do we see happening in this text? What we see here is being together as they loved God and as they loved one another day by day, guys, literally every day, God was expanding that community one person at a time. God, bringing them back, bringing them together, bringing them together. Remember, remember, we said it at the very beginning. Your destiny is found and formed in a family of faith. So God is bringing these people together, together, together. He's bringing them back. And listen, all that the early, they didn't have any outreach programs. They weren't going out into the community and passing out brochures and getting on social media and inviting, putting out invite posts to come join our church. No, they weren't inviting anyone. You read it. Read the book of Acts. Not one time do you ever see someone from within the church going out into the community inviting people to come in. What were they doing? They were doing what Jesus commanded them to do before he left, which was what? He said, the greatest commandment I give you, love God and love your neighbor, each other, as yourself. And what did we just read? What were they doing? They were together, worshiping, devoted to the teaching, fellowshipping, breaking bread together, praying with one another, doing miracles, signs, and wonders, selling their possessions, giving it away, attending the temple together, praising God, and then God is the one who brings the people in. God's the one who added to the numbers each and every day. So all the early church did was love God and love one another. Now, here's what's interesting. What, was, what were they being governed by then? What was the early church being governed by? They were being governed, and I want you to write this down. They were being governed by something called the 59 one another's. Have any, has anyone in here ever heard of the 59 one another's? Great. You're going to learn something new. They were being governed, but they were governing themselves by the 59 one another's. Now you're like, what are the 59 one another's? Okay. In the New Testament, in the New Testament, when God is, Jesus, Paul, preparing the church for how they are to be with one another, there are 59 verses that instruct us on how to be with one another. That's why it's called the 59 one another's. So you have verses like, Love one another. Wash one another's feet. Be at peace with one another. Be devoted to one another. Show honor to one another. Stop passing judgment on one another. Greet one another with a kiss. Serve one another, and so on. I'm not going to go through the whole 59, but you can Google the 59 one another's, and it'll give you a list with every single verse. Of the, of the one another's in the New Testament. That's how this church was operating. Relationality. Loving God, serving God, praising God, loving one another, serving one another, togetherness. What is this? What is this image of? It's an rela- image of relationality. It's an re- uh, image of togetherness. Now, our final text our main text tonight. You're like, you mean to tell me that you, now we're getting to the main text? Yes, but it's not going to take a long time, I promise. 1 Peter 2.9. Let's all go there together. This is our main text. I told you, we were literally going from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the back. That's okay. How fun is that? Don't you love the Bible? It's so beautiful. Okay, 1 Peter 2.9. Maybe you've heard this before. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We've heard that before tonight, didn't we? Where did we hear that? In Exodus. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. First, look at our identity. Look at our identity. Now, I want to show you something really cool. Okay. Because a lot of people read this verse and they just read past those four things. Chosen race, chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people of his own possession. They just read past that and they don't think anything of it. 
But each one of those has a meaning. And I want you to, I want you to kind of have somehow put this down in your notes. It's actually a, a, a digression where it's a funnel. It's a funnel that, or uh, not a funnel. It's a, it's a, it's a what's, that, what's that thing? An hourglass. I'm sorry, an hourglass. Where it starts off like this, and then it comes in, and then it comes back out. Okay? Watch this. You are a chosen race. What is he talking about? He's talking about the human race. That's Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Humanity, the human race, a chosen race. Now, why a chosen race? Watch this. Because before humanity existed, there were other beings that existed with God. You know what those beings are? Angels. Heavenly beings. The Bible does not say anywhere that they are chosen. As a matter of fact, what do we know from the Bible? That some of those angels, and particularly one, along with a third of heaven, rebelled against God, rejected God, and their judgment was, you're out of here, bro. Forever. There is no redemption plan for you. There is no redemption. There is no gospel for, this, for the demons. There is no gospel for Satan. Why? Because God didn't choose them. They're not chosen. Humanity God chose specifically, special, different, a chosen race, the human race. You know what the Bible says about how chosen that chosen relationship between God and humanity, the Bible says that the angels even look at God's relation with humanity and they look at it and they, get, they, they wonder and they look at it as a mystery, just to know the mystery of what God and humanity have. The Bible says that they peer and look into that. Even Satan is confused with the relation, relationship between God and humanity, that chosen race. So the chosen race human race. Then he gets a little more, boom, a little more narrow. A royal priesthood, a holy nation. Where did we read that earlier tonight? Exodus. Who was it for? The whole world? No. Who was it for? Israel. So God goes, you were a chosen race. Israel alone is my royal priesthood, my holy nation. From, from Israel, Salvation of the world will come, Jesus Christ. Then, he says, a people for his own possession. What is that? That is a fan back out. It is Jew and Gentile together. Now it's everyone. Now everyone is a people of God. You're like, that doesn't sound right. Sure it does. Read Romans chapter 1, verse 16. What does it say? I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. First, first to the Jew. The gospel goes to the Jew first. And then to the Gentile. There's an order here. A chosen race. Chosen race. Humanity. A chosen nation. A gospel that reaches everyone. Remember, what did God do? What did God do in Genesis? He dispersed the people. He sent them all over the world. He sent them all over the world, y'all. Confusion. And then God goes to this one small little nation and says, from you, salvation, and from you, I will bring it all back together. I will go and gather, go into all the world and preach the gospel and bring them all back together, a people from my own possession. You know, this is why Satan attacks you. He attacks you in order to isolate you. Remember, what is the first, the first negative comment that God made about anything in all the Bible was what? It's not good that man is alone. So what does Satan do? He sneaks around the garden and he gets Eve when she's what? Alone. And then Jesus shows up onto the scene. He's baptized. And then he goes out into the wilderness for 40 days, what? Alone. And who shows up? Satan. He does his best work 
when you're alone, isolated. He attacks when you're alone. God says it is not good for man to be alone. God is a relational God. He is a God of togetherness, being with and in. So listen, here's encouragement for you tonight. If you are in Christ, this is who you are now. If you're in Christ, this is who you are now. You're a people. You're a people. Satan always accuses those who are alone. But if you're in Christ, listen to me. Your primary identity is not a lone lost sinner anymore. You are found within the context of saved, redeemed, brought back together with and in. You also, you can't be a, a race and you can't be a priesthood and you can't be a nation and you can't be a people all by yourself. You cannot accomplish the mission and purposes of God on your own. You can't. That's why I have a hard, not a hard, well, I'm not gonna use that word. That's why I, I feel sorry when I hear people say, well, I don't need to go to church because I can have church at home by myself with just me and God. You cannot accomplish God's will and God's purposes on your own. Remember, we said earlier, it's, Christianity is not about God and you. It's about God and his people together. That's why he built the church. That's why he's established the church. You know what the bride of Christ is? You're not the bride of Christ. You know what the bride of Christ is? The church. You know what he's coming back for? He's not coming back for you. You know what he's coming back for? He's coming back for the church. He's coming back for his people. Look at the text again. That you, may, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Listen, church. We first proclaim the excellencies to each other. That's the first people we proclaim the excellencies of God to. And then that overflows into proclaiming it to the world. How many of you have ever been a part of CrossFit? Me neither. But here's what I do know, okay? Because I have a brother who is like a fitness freak, um, and I have friends who are part of workout communities like that. Cult is what they are. That's what I call them. From hell. I'm joking. But and here's what I know about cross, CrossFit culture. <clears throat> it's a culture. You're in that community. You're in that room, and you're, you're, you're working out, and... You've got personal records that you're trying to beat. And, and the whole time that you're doing it, this high-intensity room, and there's a lot of sweat and yelling and loud music, and it's just chaos and chains everywhere and medicine balls. But the whole time, the people who are in this group are just proclaiming excellencies to one another. They're encouraging one another. They're lifting each other up. They're serving one another. They're loving one another. And then they go out into the community, and, and then people who are not a part of that community, that CrossFit culture, they look at these people and are like, hey, there's something different about you. You look good. You feel different. Your attitude's better. You look happy. What's going on? And what happens is it opens the door for us to proclaim the excellencies that we're proclaiming within the community. We begin to proclaim the excellencies into all the world. And what happens? God added to their number every day. He who called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. What is that darkness that he's talking about that he's calling us out of? He's calling us out of that dispersion. God is bringing you out. He's bringing you back. He's, he's, he's drawing you in. Back together with him. So in closing, how do we practice relationality? How do we practice this? How do you practice relationality? Now, I want you to write that question in your notes because I promise you the answer is not what you think it's going to be. Because when I say, how do we practice relationality, in your head right now, you're probably thinking, oh, we got to go to church. You know, we got to go to church. We got to be, you know, we got to go to the next, you know, Bible study, and we got to go to the next women's meeting, and we got to go to the youth conference. Like, that's what you're probably thinking, and that's not the answer. 
How do we practice relationality? You ready for the answer? It's going to blow your top. One word. Dinner. Dinner. What were the early church, what were they doing everything around? Food. Eating bread. They were always at a table somewhere. Here's my invitation to you and my homework assignment for you. You're like, no, it's spring break. We don't do homework. Okay. Here's my homework for you, Christian. We need to practice relationality. Relationality is who we are. It's woven into our DNA, okay? Christianity is not about God and you. It's about God and his people. Here's your homework. Within the next two weeks, I want you to invite some Christians to have dinner with you together in your home. Not at a restaurant, in your home, where you have to cook or they have to cook and bring something or you have to cook together, do it together at home. Invite some Christians into your home. What did the book of Acts say that we just read a minute ago? They were even bringing them into their homes. Acts 2. Invite some Christians into your home. Have dinner together. Sit around your table. Serve one another. Okay? What is the topic of conversation going to be around the table? Topic of conversation is gratitude. Just, say how th- th- just talk about how good God's been to you and how thankful you are for what's happening in your life and what's happened and what you have. Let the, comp- the conversation go to expectations. Things that you would like to see happen in your life. Things that you would like to see happen within yourself. Things that you would like to see happen within your family. Talk about expectations. Dream out loud with one another. Share vision with one another. Ideas with one another. Be creative with one another. Encourage one another around the table. And lift each other up. Talk about the excellencies of God with one another. Laugh together. Don't be weird. Just sit there and stare at each other across the table. Laugh. Make a joke. Be awkward. Do something. Pray together. Pray before you eat. Go around and ask what you want, uh, you know, what you need prayer for. Pray before, pray before they leave together. How did Jesus decide to spend his final moments with his brothers the night before he was arrested? Around what? Around the dinner table. What was the last thing he instituted to practice before he left? Communion, break bread together. How did the early church gather and fellowship around the dinner table? What is the only sustainable food for the starving, empty, lonely soul? A relational God in relation with his people.